You can have a seat. If you have a Bible this morning, open up to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be mostly actually in Acts chapter 7 and 8, but we're going to begin in Acts chapter 6. If you are an Aggie, no doubt one of the first traditions you learned about was the 12th man. They probably taught you about this at fish camp or you learned about it at your freshman orientation or whatever. But you may be rusty on the details of the 12th man tradition. Uh, 12th man tradition goes back all the way to 1922 and uh, started by a man named E. King Gill, who at the time was a student at A&M. And you may remember the story. Uh, Texas A&M was playing Center College, the undefeated Center College, and it was a rough first half of the game. First half of the game, uh, the Aggies lost about six players to injuries who were not going to be able to play the second half. So uh, the coach, Dana Bible, looked up in the stands and he saw a sophomore up in the stands who had played football earlier in the season but who had quit to go focus on basketball. His name was E. King Gill. And so he called him down from the stands and he said, hey, buddy, we're losing guys left and right. I need you to suit up and get ready to play just in case. We might need you. Turned out they, they virtually emptied the bench. They actually won the game against Center College. Stunned them. Uh, e, yep, E. King Gill. I know, still exciting, 97 years later. <laughs> e. King Gill never went into the game, but he was ready. He stood ready to play. And so today, students stand up ready to jump in should their team need them, right? So the students stand through most of the game, with an exception of when the opposing uh, marching band is marching around on the field, right? They, they stand up through the majority of the game, ready to jump in. I love the tradition. I love the symbolism. Here's the reality, though. You're never going to be asked to jump into that game. And neither am I. For a few reasons. One, uh, our team has quite a bit more depth on the bench than they did in 1922, There's a lot more guys ready to jump in in case of injury. But the bigger reason really is that, uh, first of all, most of us in this room are not in the physical condition that it would require to actually jump into that game. Only a handful of us ever were in the physical condition that it would require to jump into that game. Even if you once were, you probably no longer are in the condition to do that. You haven't been practicing. You haven't been preparing. Even if you are in really good shape, You haven't been practicing with that team, right? You don't know the plays. You don't know what to do. You haven't been practicing with them day after day after day. Here's my point. The people who get called into the game are the people who have been preparing. The people who get to step in at that big moment are the people who are ready, right? They've trained their body. They've trained with the team. They're ready to roll. The same thing is true in the spiritual life. I think a lot of us, we say, man, if God calls me to do something for his kingdom, right? If I'm at work tomorrow and somebody in my office says, why don't you give me a reason for the hope that you have? We say, I'll be ready. I'll be ready to share the gospel. Or if tomorrow we we enter into some sort of trial and we find ourselves or our family under a great deal of pressure, we say, I'm going to be ready for that moment, But the reality is that a lot of us, maybe most of us, we're not ready for that moment. And the reason we're not ready to step into the game is because we haven't been preparing. 
As I read through the New Testament, and as we look at the Founders series this summer, one of the things that strikes me, especially as I read the book of Acts, is how remarkably fast the early church grew. And I pull back and I go, what is it that caused this band, essentially of 12 guys, who spent time with Jesus. What is it that caused that movement to expand so quickly, to resist persecution, to see the gospel spread throughout the world so powerfully? And certainly, certainly, it's the power of God, right? The Spirit of God that came upon them, that empowered them to share the gospel and empowered them to reflect Jesus. You cannot deny that. But you also can't deny that in the early church, you had a group of men and women who were ready because they'd been walking with God. They knew the scripture. They knew the promises of God. They had been cultivating a relationship with God. Many of them, even before the time of Jesus Christ, they had been learning who God was through the scripture. So what you see in the midst of the pressure that the early church faced is that their character emerges in beautiful ways so that even in the face of death, even in the face of trial, in those moments when they are called, as Peter would later say, to give an account for the hope that's in them, they're ready to roll. They go, yeah, take me off the bench. I'm ready to play. We're going to look this morning at the life of Stephen, one man we see in the history of the early church who in the face of really great, great pressure, we see his character emerge, a character that he's been cultivating really through his whole life. He knows God's word. He knows who God is. He loves Jesus Christ. Stephen is the first martyr for the Christian faith, that we really have a full account of his martyrdom in the Scripture. Let me give you a little bit of background about who Stephen is. If you remember, as the, as the early church grew, and as it grew rapidly, the disciples are, are preaching the gospel, and they're teaching the Word of God to these new converts. People are coming to, to believe in Jesus on a daily basis. Thousands of people are coming to believe in Jesus. And one of the things that the early church did as people were trusting in Jesus was that they provided for the widows in their congregation. So particularly in the first century, somebody who was a widow, they were very financially and economically vulnerable. So one of the things that the church did was they said, we're going to take care of these ladies by providing them with food and providing them with the money that they need to survive. But, but here was the challenge. As the church grew, there was a combination of people that were coming together. Later on in Acts, you're going to have Gentiles begin to join the church. But initially, you had, you had two groups of Jews. You had Hebrew-speaking Jews, And you had what were called Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews who came from somewhere else in the area, right? So they, they didn't grow up speaking Hebrew. These two groups didn't always get along. So here's what happened. There was a distribution of funds going out toward these widows. And the book of Acts says that there was an argument between the Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews about whether it was fair. Who's getting enough money? Who's getting the short end of the stick? And so what the disciples decide to do, if you look at Acts chapter 6, this is where we see Stephen enter the picture, starting in verse 1. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. 
So here's what the disciples decided to do. The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose, first guy listed, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and then Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So you have these seven guys, that they're designated, hey, y'all are going to oversee the distribution of the food. Stephen is one of them. And what we have that follows then is, is the, really the rest of Stephen's story as he ministers in this role and then as he is called upon to testify for his faith. And again, what we see is Stephen has this character that emerges in beautiful ways in the midst of pressure, right? And really, as I read Stephen's story, the question that I keep coming back to is, do I have that character? Do you have that character? Are you and I cultivating on a day-to-day basis the depth of walk with Jesus Christ, the depth of relationship with Jesus Christ, so that in those moments when we're called upon to give a testimony, in those moments when we face trial, what comes out is the character of Jesus Christ. What what is going to come out of your life in moments of pressure? I want us to look this morning at what comes out of Stephen's life, what comes out of Stephen's heart. I want to look at a few characteristics that Stephen had built throughout the course of his life that we now see in this passage and that we see play out at the moment of his martyrdom. We're going to begin in chapter 6. Stephen was, first of all, a man who was full of of faith. I find it interesting, chapter 6, verse 5, that we just read. There's this list of seven guys. The very first one listed is Stephen, and it says, Stephen, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now, all of them were said to have been full of the Holy Spirit. That's why they were selected in the first place. Stephen is the only one singled out like this. It says, here's Stephen, first guy on the list, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. What, is it, what does it mean that he's full of faith. Well, very simply, here's here's what it means, is that Stephen is the kind of person who has built his life on the promises of God. Stephen is the kind of person who on a day-to-day basis, you get the sense that when he is struggling with trial on a day-to-day basis, he goes back to the promises of God. That God has promised through Jesus Christ that He will always be with us, even to the end of the age. That God has promised that if you know Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives within you and empowers you for the tasks that He has called you to do. The Spirit of God has promised in the Word of God that Jesus is coming back, right? We have a promise of eternal life. So here's what happens, and you're going to see this in Stephen's speech in just a moment. That the promises of God are so deeply written on Stephen's heart that in the moment of trial, that's what he starts talking about. In that moment of trial, that's what Stephen goes back to. Even in the face of death, Stephen will say, I have a rock-solid foundation because I know God has made me promises in His Word and not even death can destroy the promises of God. 
And so he has this, this foundation of faith. And what's critical really for Stephen, and I think if Stephen were with us this morning, he would say, look, it's actually not my faith that is the critical thing. It's, it's the God I have faith in. It's the object of my faith. I don't know how many of you a few years ago saw the original Lego movie. Uh, many of you probably did, but there's, there's a kind of a major plot device in that movie that centers around a poster of a cat, and, and it says, believe, right? And we've, we've all seen posters similar to this, maybe at the dentist's office or something. As you look at the ceiling, you see a poster. And, and I love this poster, mostly because the question that I have as I look at it is, what does the cat believe in? What is he trusting right now? Because it looks to me like he's about to fall, right? He's about to have a nasty tumble. He took a leap. He took a chance. He believes. Maybe he believes in himself, but he doesn't have any solid ground underneath his feet, does he? Right? And what Stephen would say is this. Faith has to have a secure object, a certain object, a foundation that you can trust. Hebrews chapter 11 says that those who want to, want to please God has to, has, have to believe that he exists, he is, and he is a rewarder of those who have faith in him. That's the kind of God that we serve. And so what we see in Stephen's life is he's a man who has cultivated faith in God. Have you cultivated that faith in the promises of God? In the day-to-day, in what you might describe as small trials in your life, right? Maybe it's a, a financial challenge or bump in the road. Maybe it is some sort of relational challenge with you and your spouse or, or you and your kids or your parents. Maybe it is that you're in a difficult workplace and, and you're struggling. Here's my question. Do you come back in those moments to the reality of the promises of God? That Jesus is with you. That the Spirit of God lives within you and gives you strength to reflect His character even in hardship? Do you come back to the reality that we can build our life on the promises of God and on the hope of the return of Jesus Christ? Or or do you believe in something else? Do you believe and say, you know what, I, I can be good enough, I can be strong enough, I can push through this, and you find your own resolve beginning to waver because you, you, you have this faith or this belief that in general is, is out there, but you don't know what the object of your, your faith is that you're going to make it through. Stephen knew that Jesus Christ was the object of his hope, and he had built his life on the hope of Jesus Christ. So Stephen is described, first of all, as a man full of faith. Secondly, Stephen is described as a man who is full of grace and power. Let me read a little bit further down here in chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. 
They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The way this section starts then, it says, here's Stephen, he's full of two characteristics, grace and power. Here's what's going on in Stephen's life. And Stephen has built his life on the promises of God, right? He's full of faith. And as he's full of faith in Jesus Christ, Stephen begins to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Remember John chapter 1, where it says, We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Right? We see the glory of Jesus Christ, and we see the grace of Jesus Christ, and we hear in his words the truth of God. And what happens is Stephen begins to absorb those characteristics. So he's full of two, two characteristics, grace and power, right? And you see that in the way he ministers, and you see that in the way he responds to this persecution. Now, I find it really interesting. These are not two characteristics that we would normally put together, would we? What is grace? Well, grace is essentially the idea that, that I am bestowing upon you, or God would bestow upon us something we don't deserve, right? It's the bestowal of undeserved favor, something you didn't earn, something you don't deserve. God gives to us. That's grace, right? That's what, that's what Jesus did when Jesus came to the earth to live among us. That was grace. He didn't have to do that. When he died for our sins in our place, that's grace. When he rose again and he promises us eternal life, that's grace. That's all a gift, right? So Stephen lives a life of grace. Notice that his primary job, the thing that they select him for, is to be in charge of, of giving out food and money to widows who are in need. That's a job full of grace. But he's also full of power unrattled in the face of persecution, bold when he begins to speak. And so Stephen has both of these attributes, just as Jesus did. Right? I don't know what you think about when you think about power, but certainly in our culture in this day and age, when people think about power, what do they probably think about first? They think about superheroes, right? They think about the Avengers. Think about the, the, the Avengers for just a moment. Let me just pull one character somewhat at random. Thor, right? Thor is the strongest of the Avengers. He is full of power, right? He has that hammer that he can knock people out with or take people out, whatever. He's full of power. He's full of justice. He's not full of grace. He's not full of mercy, right? You've never seen Thor in a movie come up to the bad guy, Thanos, and say, I forgive you, right? Let's have a hug. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. He's full of power. He's strong. And we juxtapose power against grace, and we may say, ah, those two don't go together. What do we think about when we think about grace? Well, we probably, in, in popular terms, we think about people who are graceful, right? A ballerina or a piano player. If we think about grace in terms of mercy and kindness, maybe we think about the type of person who's a pushover, right? Maybe somebody on the, on the highway that just lets people cut them off all day long or whatever it may be. You think about weakness. But what we see in the life of Stephen is it says Stephen has grace and Stephen has power. So even as he's being dragged in front of the council, and later we'll see, even as people are gnashing their teeth and rushing at him to stone him, Stephen is unafraid because he is full of the power of God. But he's full of grace. 
just as Jesus is, full of grace and power. I think for us, it's so easy to err on one side or the other. Right? We can be full of power and full of truth, and we're bold, right? And we can defend any idea, maybe on Facebook or with our friends or with our family. I'm going to make sure that people know what I think because I have power. Or we say, you know what, I, I'm, full of, I'm full of grace, and so I just I pull away. And I, I, I give people the freedom just to, to do whatever they want to anybody all the time. What we see in Stephen is grace and power married together because we see that in the character of Jesus Christ. Here toward the end of chapter 6, it says, when everybody looked at Stephen, they saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know if Stephen's face was, was literally physically shining like an angel, but think about angels in the scripture. Okay, when, Again, in popular culture, when you think about angels, you probably think like precious moments, right? They're basically flying babies. That's not what they are. In the Bible, right? In the Bible, angels are often very fearful creatures, right? They are fear-inducing creatures, I should say. They stand in front of people and they shine with the glory of God. And so people freak out. People fall on their knees and they're like, don't kill me. And angels always have to say something like, hey, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I'm here to give you a message from God. Angels are powerful, but then they reach down and they say, don't be afraid. They're full of grace. Because they reflect a God who is full of grace and power. And so Stephen has these characteristics. And again, are we people full of faith? And are we people who are increasingly beginning to reflect the character of Jesus Christ? Who can pray even for our enemies. Who will speak the truth in boldness when called upon to do so. Because we're also full of the power of the Holy Spirit, who are not afraid of the world around us, but also don't have to engage the world around us with hatred and anger. Because we know how Jesus engaged even his enemies. Powerful and strong. Nobody would accuse Jesus of being weak or wimpy. And yet gracious, even on the cross, to say, Father, forgive them. So Stephen is full of grace and power, characteristics that he's been cultivating throughout his life, full of faith, full of grace and power. Thirdly, saturated in the Scripture, saturated in the Word of God. I wish that I had time to read his entire uh, sermon here in, in chapter 7. There's a lot of sermons in the book of Acts. Stephen's is the longest one. But let me summarize a little bit of what he does. Here was the accusation against Stephen. The accusation was, hey, this guy is undermining the law, right? The law of Moses. Remember, we're still in a Jewish context here. Stephen, by preaching Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, was threatening those who had a tight grip on the law, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, just as Jesus threatened that system. Stephen, by preaching Jesus, threatens that system. The specific allegation against him is he's saying, we don't need the temple anymore to worship God. 
Because Jesus has come, and so everybody can know God through Jesus. We can now be the temple of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And so, so, the, so the allegation is, hey, he is undermining all of this temple system. Right, so, so Stephen now is given an opportunity to respond, and he gives this long sermon. And essentially what he does, he goes all the way back to Abraham and the founding fathers of the Jewish people, and he works his way forward. He talks about Abraham, and he talks about the, the patriarchs, and he talks about Moses, and then he moves into the prophets, and he, he moves into David Right? And here's essentially what he says. He goes, two points that he makes, right? Stephen uh, is a great, relatively concise preacher. He only has two points, not six like I have this morning. So, okay, here's his two basic points. First one is this. God has never needed one place in order to do what he's going to do. Right? The, the temple was always a way for the Jewish people, certainly, to know and see the power of God. Right, but, but God doesn't need the temple. And he, and he talks about how in the wilderness, the people of Israel, when they were wandering, the tabernacle, remember, it moved from place to place. And what did God do? God moved with them. He talks about how David says, look, you can't build a house for God, right? Because heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. God could never be confined to one location, right? So first of all, he tells them, your theology of worship is wrong. God never needed a temple. We needed a temple. But God didn't ever need a temple. And he can move in a new way anytime he so pleases. Secondly, he goes through the history of Israel and he says, you're accusing me of undermining the law and the prophets. Let me just remind you of the history of your people. And he's one of them. But he says, look, you, you, you rejected Moses. You rejected the prophets. You disobeyed the law. At every stage, you have been people who have rejected the revelation that God has given, and you're still doing it because God has given you a Messiah in Jesus Christ, and you're rejecting Him even right now. So he says, you guys are accusing me of not fulfilling the law. You've never fulfilled the law. You're hypocrites. And that's essentially the end of his sermon. He doesn't land it with a cat joke or anything like that. He just ends it basically that way. But what I love about it is that it's so clear that, that, that Stephen has absorbed the Scripture, that when he's called upon in this moment of pressure, what comes out is this, this beautifully written history of the people of God and why Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all of the Old Testament. I mean, it just emerges. Stephen doesn't have a week to prepare this sermon. This sermon emerges from his life and his heart. He is saturated in the Word of God. When I was a seminary student, one of the ways that I made extra money to pay for school was I did some tutoring of high school students in the evenings. And I worked through a tutoring company, so when I applied to work for them, the, the guy that owned the company said, okay, what, what can you teach? Like, what are some of the things you can do? And I said, pretty much, I just kind of without thinking, I said, pretty much anything math or science related, I think I could do it. I was an engineering major, so I ought to be good. So he goes, great. So, you know, he puts me in there, and, and the math was fine. I was, I was, it was high school math, so I was doing okay. 
But then he sent me to a couple of kids who needed help with high school chemistry. Right? And the last time I had done chemistry was my freshman year in college, years before, and I wasn't that great at it in the first place. Right? So this kid opens it up, and there's these like titration problems and stoichiometry problems and all of these things. And he's like, how do I do this problem? And I, and, and I did not know what to do. And so I said, why don't we, I tell you, one thing I like to do is let's, let's learn this together, right? So, so what we'll do is we'll go through your textbook and we'll just, we'll just read it and we'll look at the sample problems and we'll work through this together, right? And so, so together, we learned all the material. Why? Because I didn't remember it. Why didn't I remember it? Because I had moved on from that subject. I had not been saturating my mind in chemistry for years. That was a pun, and I did intend it. Actually, I thought about that pun for a while, so give me some, okay. I had not been saturating my mind in chemistry for a long time, right? So I hadn't been filling my mind with it. So in that moment of pressure, I wasn't ready. Stephen was ready because he'd been saturating his mind in the Word of God for his whole life. Do we do that? Or do we say, now, nah, in that moment of pressure, I'll find it. I've, I've got an app. I'll figure it out. Or do we invest the time so the Word of God is written on our hearts and in our minds? So that in that spot, when we're called upon to testify of the good news of Jesus Christ, we know where to go in His Word to talk about what He did. In that moment when we're under pressure and we're struggling, can we go back to the promises of God from His Word to know where they are, to know how to find them? Can we, can we recite even from memory truth about who God is and His character? I know often you know, people will say, I'm not, I'm not really a great memorizer. And here's, here's what I would say. In fact, just this past week, one of our uh, fellows, one of our interns at the church said, how do you develop a deep knowledge of the Bible? And here's my only answer to this is you just, you just read it a lot. You just read it. And I've known men and women who never took a seminary class, who never read a deep theological book, but they are saturated with the word of God because day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, through the decades of their life. They just read it, and they meditated on it, and they filled their hearts with it. And that's what Stephen has done. And so he knows the Word of God. And then fourthly, Stephen is a person who's, who's devoted to Jesus. That in the face of trial, the place Stephen looks is to Jesus. Not at the circumstances around him, not at the people around him, but at Jesus. Let me show you what happens when he finishes his sermon. Starting in verse 54 of chapter 7. He ends his sermon essentially 
uh, verse 52, he says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced to the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Period. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Every preacher hopes for a positive response to their sermons. This is not positive. Right? They begin to gnash their teeth. They rush at him. They cover their ears. They begin to drag him out of the city and they grab rocks and they're ready to stone him to death. But what I notice in the midst of this, Stephen's gaze never wavers. Stephen continues to look up into the heavens and he says, here's what I see. I see Jesus and he's standing at the right hand of God. Now what's interesting is when you read throughout the scripture, passages like Psalm 110 or in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is often pictured or the Messiah is often pictured at the right hand of the Father, right? But, but quite often he is, he's seated at the right hand of the Father and not standing. Right, Hebrews says when Jesus finished his work, what did he do? He sat down because the work was done. So why is he standing up? And here's the best answer that I have read is that in a court case in the ancient world, if you were called upon to give testimony for somebody, right, you didn't sit in a box like we do today. You would stand up in front of the court. And so Stephen sees Jesus, and as Stephen is about to die and go to see his Savior, Jesus stands up. And you know why Jesus stands up? Is he looks at Stephen, and he says, I'm your witness, Stephen. You got no witnesses standing here. You have nobody coming to your defense. Stephen, look at me. I'm your witness. And so Stephen keeps his eyes focused on Jesus. As he says, Stephen, you got it right. You're vindicated. You're guiltless in the eyes of your Savior. And so Stephen keeps his eyes focused on Jesus. And again, demonstrating both that grace and power, he says, oh, Father, forgive them. As he looks at Jesus and prepares to go to see him. Stephen is devoted to Jesus Christ because he spent his life looking at Jesus. Uh, we had a amateur video made at, at our wedding. We could not afford a videographer, so I asked a friend of mine to do the filming. And uh, so he filmed both at the rehearsal dinner and at the wedding itself. 
And there's this scene, as we watch our wedding video, there's this scene where we're at the rehearsal dinner and I had, had some friends who had gotten engaged just shortly after we got engaged. And so they were, they were getting ready to get married, but they had just gotten engaged at our rehearsal dinner. And as, as the videographer kind of panned the crowd, everybody else is talking with their friends and, and with their neighbors. And he, he pans by this couple who's just gotten engaged and they are totally not paying attention to anything else that's happening at dinner. Their eyes are locked in on each other through the whole dinner. He comes back to them and they're just, you know, nobody else is in the room because they were in love. As all this chaos is happening around him, here's Stephen focused on Jesus. Because as he, as, he had, as he had learned about Jesus and as he had gotten to know Jesus through the Spirit, he'd fall in love with Jesus. And even to the end, he's devoted to him. So that in this moment of trial, the character that emerges is the character that's been cultivated. What kind of person is Stephen? Well, it's not, he's not a complicated person. What he's done is not complex. All that Stephen seems to have done is he said, I'm going to devote my life to knowing and reflecting Jesus Christ. It's not complicated. It's not easy. But it's not complicated. He says, all I need to do is fix my eyes on who he is and all he's promised me in his word. So that what comes out in the moment of pressure is not anger, despair, self-pity, fear, bitterness. But what comes out is grace and power and truth in reflection of Jesus. So here's what happens very quickly as a result of his martyrdom. The first, first thing is this. The persecution actually increases because both the Roman and the Jewish systems that were surrounding them begin to understand that this growing movement of Jesus' followers poses a real threat to the status quo. So you see here a hint. Saul, who later becomes Paul, Saul begins to persecute most viciously. Right? So he goes and he finds people and he's dragging them away to put them in prison, ultimately to have them executed. So the persecution increases. But something else happens, and that is that the gospel also begins to to spread. As Christians begin to scatter in the face of persecution, they go and they scatter throughout, uh, throughout the region, and they begin to share the gospel with others. And more and more people are beginning to trust in Jesus, because in the face of persecution, what they're seeing is the power and the grace of God. And others are saying, I want to be a part of that. I want to jump onto that as they share the message. And so Stephen's testimony, his grace under pressure, the character that emerges, becomes a foundation for the growth of the church. So as we close, then let me ask this question. When we are under pressure, does our response demonstrate the character of Jesus? Maybe that you're in the room this morning and you, you don't yet know Jesus. And so, so in order to begin to develop that character, in order to know God, in order to have the hope that Stephen had to say, I know that I have eternal life. I know that death is not the end for me. You need to know that Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose again to give you eternal life. And all who trust in him 
can have the same hope that Stephen had, the same hope that we sing about this morning, that we have eternal life. And then if you know him, are you cultivating that character? Again, there's no real secret to it. There's no shortcut to it. All it is 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 day after day of engaging with the Word of God, of spending time in prayer to both ask Him to strengthen you and then to ask for the power and the gratitude and the grace to follow Him. Are we cultivating that character? Last time you were under pressure, what came out? I don't always like to think about that question. Are we cultivating the character of Jesus Christ so that when that moment comes, Lord willing, none of us in this room are going to be asked to die for our faith. But in small ways, we're called upon to testify to the grace of Jesus Christ and to endure pressure and suffering and trial in a way that honors Jesus so that we can know him deeply and others can know him. What what character is emerging? And are we cultivating that character day by day by day? Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the example and the testimony of, of men like Stephen, men like the Apostle Paul, who were not perfect, but they were just, they were just men. Who said, I, I, want to, I want to follow you. Father, we see men and women throughout the New Testament who were simply faithful to say, I want to listen to the voice of the Spirit and trust in Jesus. And the reason that encourages us, Lord, is, is we're also just people. We're just men and women in this room. We're, we're not perfect we're flawed, we're sinful, but, but we see the hope that we can have a life that reflects the character of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray for the grace and the discipline and the endurance from your Spirit to cultivate that character. Not so that we can prove to you that we're good, but because you're good. And Jesus is good, and we want the world to know him. We praise you and we thank you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And God bless you. Have a wonderful week.